Welcome to this Centrum podcast. For more podcasts or to join Centrum programs building creativity in community, visit us at centrum.org. This is Rob Berman with Centrum in Port Townsend. Thanks for joining us for this podcast. Hundreds of thousands of people around the world contribute bird observations to the Cornell Lab of Ornithology each year, providing data on a scale once unimaginable. Scientists use this data to reveal how birds are affected by habitat loss, pollution, disease, climate, and other environmental changes. Nestwatch, the lab citizen science project on birds, has been monitoring nesting birds' reproductive success since the 1960s. This long-term database is the nation's richest source of information on avian reproductive biology. Project leader Robin Bailey was joined by Ted Alvarez in conversation on April 13, 2020, in a discussion about current research, education, and communication initiatives for NestWatch. We learned about small things we can all do to help birds every day. Now, please welcome, from CrossCut, Ted Alvarez. Without further ado, it is my great pleasure to introduce Robin Bailey, project leader for NestWatch at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Since the 1960s, the Cornell Lab has monitored nesting birds, offering the richest and deepest data set for avian reproductive biology in the country. It's a particularly compelling example of the power of citizen science and how, as a community, we can really push science and, and uh, research forward. With that, um, Robin, can you tell us a little bit more about NestWatch and the work that you do? Hi, thanks. Thank you, Robert and Ted, for that wonderful introduction. NestWatch, as you mentioned, is a citizen science effort coordinated by the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. And what that means is that scientists like myself are asking people who care about birds, who are interested in bird watching, to report their bird observations for the benefit of the community, the, the scientific community, and the conservation community. And we do that by looking at nesting birds. So as I'll show you in some of my upcoming slides that I've prepared, there are myriad ways that participants can get involved and share what they learn about nesting birds with us so that we can learn about it as well. Great. Well, uh, yeah, without uh, further ado, let's, let's go ahead and get into this, uh, this presentation. Yes, hopefully this will work. I'm going to try to share my screen. If you'll give me just a okay. moment. Absolutely. And pardon me for just a second while I choose the correct screen sharing option. How's that? I can see it great. So hopefully everyone else can, but yeah, it looks great to me. Great, hopefully our audience can follow along and join me as I discuss several ways that we can help birds in our changing world. So thank you so much for giving me this opportunity to speak to you guys today. And I wanna start off by saying that it is no exaggeration to say that much of what we've learned about birds in the last 30 years is supported by the invisible work of amateur bird watchers. In fact, a study published in 2014 refer to this phenomenon as the invisible prevalence of birds, of citizen science and global bird research. 
that study shined a light on how much ornithologists owe to professional researchers, or sorry, how much ornithologists owe to non-professional bird watchers. And I say this as a professional researcher because it contrasts very starkly with my former work studying rattlesnakes. So um, the public definitely wants to help birds and that's a tremendous resource that, that's available. And it's all because of people like you. That same study on the invisible prevalence of citizen science revealed that volunteers have collected data that underpins up to 77% of the studies on climate change and birds. How many other biologists can say that about their study species? That 77% of a major disciplinary topic was, was contributed by volunteers. That's incredible. Long running citizen science projects give us insight into how populations are ch changing over time. For example, these tree swallows are a species that have been documented nesting nine days sooner than they did 30 years ago. Um, as spring temperatures warm and that triggers an earlier onset of nesting behaviors, these birds are actually changing their migration and breeding strategy to keep up with that. So we can tell that by long-term databases like citizen science databases. And nest monitoring in particular has been popular since the 1960s, revealing where birds nest and how successful they are. Whether birds are being successful in their nesting efforts can tell us a lot about the health of the environment. You may be familiar with the DDT era reductions in hatching success of birds like ospreys, falcons, and eagles. And that was due to eggshell thinning. And that was preventing the eggs from hatching. So it was by studying their nesting success that scientists were able to recommend steps to reverse those declines. And without looking at the nests, it wouldn't have been clear why the populations were dwindling. So we use a combination of techniques to study birds. It's not just about counting them. And most recently, in 2019, one of the most sobering studies of bird population declines was published, creating a media sensation. It was a wake-up call to both scientists and the public. Volunteer bird counters had been contributing their observations for decades to massive databases. And over time, that data pointed to one alarming fact. And that is that about 3 billion birds have gone missing since the 1970s, meaning people who would have counted these birds and seen them in the 70s are no longer able to see them today. And I wanna share with you, if it will work, a video that sort of encapsulates this research and enables, in a better way than I can do, enables you to quickly understand what that research meant and then some steps forward that we can talk about and discuss as we go along through this event for how to, how to change that trend. That's an alarming trend and we wanna change it. So hopefully this will work and you guys may need to adjust your volume, but I'm gonna play a quick video for you. Birds are part of our lives. They fill the air with song, inspire us with their beauty, and make their homes in the most unexpected places. Sometimes they're even our neighbors. But the birds we love are vanishing. An alarming new study reveals that the population of North American birds has dropped nearly 30% since 1970. That's almost 3 billion birds gone, vanished from our forests, 
grasslands and backyards in less than the span of a human lifetime. Some of the hardest hit are familiar birds, orioles, meadowlarks, swallows, warblers. What's driving this decline? Birds are losing the habitats they need, places to live, find food, rest, and raise their young. They face many other threats as well. Cats and collisions with glass to toxic pesticides and insect declines. Climate change will compound all of these problems and accelerate the loss of habitats birds need. This enormous loss of birds signals a broader crisis in the natural world, one that ultimately affects us all. But it's not too late. Our actions on behalf of birds make a positive difference and benefit the entire planet. Thanks to strong conservation efforts and habitat management, many waterfowl and formerly endangered species are now flourishing. It's time to expand these conservation efforts to help the rest of our birds recover too. With our help, they can be restored as a vital part of the American landscape and a precious part of our lives. We're united in pursuing better protections and increased support for birds. And you can help. Please join us. Hopefully everyone was able to hear that. And I will exit out of that and move ahead. So that was some, some pretty stark evidence there that birds need our help. But just as the video says, there is hope. And our best hope is you. We've compiled these seven simple actions to help us all make life a little easier for birds. And these include things like making windows safer, keeping cats indoors, reducing your lawn and planting native species, avoiding pesticides, drinking coffee that's good for birds, protecting our planet from plastics, and watching birds to share what you see. Now, I'll briefly cover each of these, but my emphasis will be on that seventh one. A 2014 study estimated that 599 million birds die each year from window collisions in the U.S. alone. And I know that we can do better than that. For around $10, you can protect a window with bird deterrence. It doesn't have to be every window in your house. Just start with the worst window. We all know that there's probably just that one window that gets the most light that is attractive to birds by reflecting habitat. So with, with just $10 worth of stickers or bird tape or even um, you know, using soap on the window, you can pick one window and start there. And that's something you can do today to help birds. Sorry. Um, the second one, we know that outdoor cats are a real problem for birds. And the research tells us that cats kill approximately 2.4 billion birds each year in the U.S. alone. And this breaks my heart because I'm a cat lover. I have six cats. So um, this is actually a photo of one of my cats on the right here. 
And I just want to share briefly about some better options for how to give your cat safe access to the outdoors. You can put your cat on a harness and take it for a walk, like Philip here on the right and is wearing his harness, love to go for walks. Um, you can also have something enclosed for your cats, like a catio, which is a fun way of saying a patio for cats. And um, that way they have access to nature, sights, smells, sounds of nature. Um, they can see birds, but they won't actually be able to hunt. So your kitties will also live a longer, healthier life um, if you have managed access to the outdoors. Another one is through landscaping. You can add opportunities for nesting and encourage the insect populations that birds need to feed their young by planting low, medium, and tall layers. You can satisfy birds near the ground and shrubs and in the canopy for wherever they like to nest. Um, providing fruit-bearing shrubs also gives excellent food resources to birds and evergreens can provide continuous cover all year round. A water and food source is also helpful. Basically, you just don't want your yard to be sterile, which means that you should have native plants, the least amount of lawn that you can get away with, and be pesticide free. Speaking of pesticides, a surprising number of birds rely on insects to feed their young. Skipping pesticides leaves more natural food for birds in your yard in the form of insects and small rodents. Now this is one of the easiest things to do for me because I love drinking coffee and drinking bird friendly coffee is a super easy way to help birds. I know not everyone drinks coffee, but uh, if you drink it, I can tell you that I consume this stuff every day and it tastes better than regular coffee. Just like a homegrown tomato tastes better, certified shade grown coffee tastes better to me because it's had time to mature and it supports as many as four times more birds than coffee grown in full sun. Reducing plastics is another important way to help a variety of birds, and it's also relevant to nesting birds. Plastics are attractive materials for nesting birds, meaning they like to put them in their nests, but this can often lead to um, undesired consequences, possibly even fatalities. So it's a good idea to reduce plastics and try to, try to remove plastics from the environment if you can organize a cleanup or um, always dispose of your plastics properly. Now for the seventh one, I wanna focus in on that last item, which is watching birds and sharing what you've seen. As I've already mentioned, this is one of the best means we have for doing big data ornithology. There are numerous projects you could be involved with from great backyard bird count to eBird, to Project Feeder Watch, the list goes on and on. But it's now nesting season, so I wanna focus in on one particular project, and that is Nest Watch. This is the project that I manage. Um, it's a citizen science nest monitoring program that asks individuals to report any bird's nest that they find. From eggs, to ruckus young, to adorable fledglings. There are two main ways to contribute your observations, using our mobile app, or you can log into nestwatch.org. Even in this time of social distancing, if you have access to the outdoors and you can get, have a little space outside that you can search, you can nestwatch. As long as you follow your local ordinances and keep distance from others, it can be a fun activity for your family um, that gets you and your children out learning about birds. 
Um, finally, placing a nest box can be another way to add more opportunities to nest. If you go to nestwatch.org, you'll learn which species you can attract to your region and to your habitat type, and you can download free nest box plans to attract those birds. Our All About Bird Houses section of our website has everything you need to choose and install a box, troubleshoot any issues, and attract the birds that you want. So I think I'll leave it there and just show these links that I mentioned in case anybody wants to copy them down. Um, thanks for letting me share that brief presentation and I look forward to discussing these topics with you further. Thanks so much, Robin. That was a, that was a really incredible uh, presentation and, and I think you talking about uh, Nestwatch at the end and what people can do brings me back to something we talked about before briefly that was really intriguing, which as you mentioned that it seems with science that that there's nothing left to be discovered maybe especially for a non-professional but you mentioned that plenty of nest watch participants citizen scientists have actually did it in a meaningful way maybe have, have even co-authored some papers i was curious what uh, some of your favorite examples were of of those of, of those contributions yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent question. And, and sometimes when I start talking about big data, it's easy to forget that there are small discoveries available to individuals as well, including complete novices. So one excellent example is actually um, a woman from Gig Harbor, Washington, emailed me several years ago and she asked, which bird was this nesting in her birdhouse? And she thought she knew what it was, but it was a species that was not supposed to nest in nest boxes. So she emailed, the, she emailed a question to me and I thought, no, those birds don't nest in birdhouses. If you send me a picture, I'll identify the bird for you. So she sends me a picture and it's a dark-eyed junco nesting in a birdhouse, which they are not supposed to do. They are ground nesting birds that usually will nest um, on the ground, maybe underneath a brush pile or near a pile of uh, ferns, that kind of thing. So when she sent that image, I thought, <laughs> That's completely unknown. Nobody's ever, nobody's ever found a dark-eyed junco nesting in a birdhouse. Um, we should write a paper about that. So together with, with um, this citizen scientist, we, we gathered up the photos and the evidence and submitted a paper jointly that was published. So that was just a really cool way that even individuals who are just beginning to learn about birds can surprise me and give completely new insights that will be worthy of being into this, entered into the scientific literature. So that was one really cool example that I, I, I've learned never to say <laughs> never, <laughs> that birds don't do a certain thing. That's amazing. Um, that's, yeah, that's really wild. Um, do you have, uh, I'm curious, like how many participants do you have? And is there a good, is there a good example um, of how that big data, like, really informs a certain discovery like where just the, the the critical mass of so many people pouring into one particular project yes that is a really good point um any given year nestwatch has um roughly three thousand people participating but they contribute almost twenty-seven thousand nests a year which is, is tremendous um, when I used to nest search, I've, I used to be a, you know, a paid nest searcher who would go out and look for nests all summer, and I might find 30, uh, 50 if I was really 
really good that, you know, the bird was really obvious to find, but you're talking 30 to 50 nests compared to 28,000, 30,000 nests that we get each year in Nest Watch. So um, those, those tens of thousands of nests a year coming into the database enable us to look at things that are otherwise not possible. And one recent example that I really like was a study that um, I actually wasn't involved in it, but it was a study on the effects of drought on eastern bluebirds. We made our data available to a researcher and they were curious about how drought affects birds because we actually do get drought in the east and under different climate scenarios we might expect more drought or less drought. And um, the researchers were able to look all across the breeding range of the eastern bluebird, everywhere that it was represented from Canada to Florida to Texas. And it was one of the single largest studies of any nesting species that I know of. And that was just tremendous that that's the power of citizen science is that we can look at really big questions as well as small local questions. So that's just one example. There are many. That's great. <laughs> I'm a. I, I'm a. I'm also curious. I, you know, in in going over your materials, that you are, you know, interested in the engineering and design of nesting birds. I'm curious if you have a favorite example of maybe a, a surprising structure or just like a really, you know, just a really amazing type of nest built by a particular species. Hmm. Well, that's an unexpected question because <laughs> it's really, really hard. <laughs> I do my research. Yeah, um, I, I, I am in love with the architecture of the egg and the nest and how birds package up their genetic material, safeguard it, and then release it into the world. That's just amazing to me that, that birds can do that. I guess if I had to pick a specific bird that I would want to be raised in their nest, I would pick black-hatched chickadee because chickadees in general put lots of soft, cozy moss in their nest and then they line it with fur. So every, any kind of fur that they can find, deer fur, raccoon, fox, um, they make a beautiful little nest. And then the sneaky thing that they do that often tricks nest watchers is they are actually clever enough to cover up the eggs with nest material when they leave their box. They nest in, in boxes or cavities. And then you can make the mistake of looking in there and thinking there's nothing in there when in fact they're, they're mm. hidden by nest materials. So the parents are really clever and they have this neat adaptation to help protect their young when they're not home. So if she's out getting food, those little eggs are covered up and they're safe. So I just think that that's probably one of the coolest birds and it's just a common chickadee that probably everyone has seen at some point in their yard. That's amazing. So you, you mentioned earlier that you had done work with rattlesnakes before, and, and so I'm just cur curious, uh, but if you can kind of explain a little bit how you transitioned into birds and like why, why that captured your imagination out of, you know, all of the particular things you might study. Yeah, I, I think my mom also wonders why I detoured into rattlesnakes. <laughs> but... Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a funny story. I actually started out um, interested in birds and ornithology. Um, but at the time that I was applying to graduate school, there were, there were really only a few options for where I thought I might want to go. 
and I knew that I wanted to work with endangered species or species of conservation concern and help try to figure out problems for endangered species and how to, re how to change that trajectory. And it just so happened that I met a wonderful advisor who had a funded project. It all comes back to funding, right? He had a funded project for studying these endangered rattlesnakes that I had never even heard of called Eastern Massasauga rattlesnakes. And they're a smaller species of rattlesnake, very shy, very reclusive. So most people have, will never see one, even if they live within that habitat. So I ended up doing my graduate work um, under that project and ended up learning a lot, a lot of things that could be applied to other species and other fields. And then as I graduated, it just happened that I met a man who brought me to Ithaca, New York, where the Cornell Lab of Ornithology is based. And, you know, but as the story goes, that's all she wrote. I yeah. <laughs> ended up um, returning back to my original love of birds here in uh, Ithaca, New York, and working at the Lab of Ornithology, which is, which is a pretty great place to work if you're interested in birds. That's great. Uh, returning to citizen science, I'm curious if there are places, I, well, either species or locations where there are particular gaps where it's like, this is, this is something we actually need some special attention or work on, you know, and, and, you know, if you're, if you're reaching out to potential nest watchers, these are things that you're interested in, in, you know, maybe getting a little more data on. Great question. Um, as with most citizen science projects, um, the data coverage is sort of associated with where people live. So we have a lot more data in areas where people are abundant than we do in areas, for example, in the desert where there might not be as many people. Or um, I'm trying to think of other examples. Um, in the Great Plains, areas where human density is not that high, it, it also tends to be the case that we don't have a high density of data. So one of the things I would say is that regardless of where you live, every observation is important because you might be that one person in the middle of the desert who's submitting their data and that's really important. Um, in terms of species, uh, obviously the most common species are the ones that will enable us to answer really big broad questions. So don't think that just because all you have in your backyard or coming to your feeders are boring basic birds, don't think that that's not interesting because as we've demonstrated with the dark-eyed junco story, even the most common birds can surprise us. And, and common birds are actually still declining, so we need as much data on them as we can get. So um, there's no bird too common, there's no place too boring to report from. About, I'm curious if what, uh, just sort of the overview of what participation is like in the Northwest, to the best of your knowledge, and any, any particular species of interest that are either, you know, native or seasonal? Um, well, participation in Nestwatch is going to be pretty similar for people in all of the regions uh, because we do have a scientific protocol that we are asking people to follow. Uh, the basic participation is going out and finding a nest, but we want there to be certain things that everybody does the same. So the data are comparable from say Seattle all the way to New York City to the Everglades, wherever you're at, we want to be able to compare those data. 
So if you are interested in joining us, watch one of the first things you'll see on our website is our protocol and um, some information on how to monitor birds without disturbing them. And there are some, some easy things you can learn how to do really quickly, like um, you know, check birds when the weather is nice. So if you're in an area that gets a lot of rain, try to time your nest checking at a time when it doesn't, isn't going to impair the birds, um, for example. Um, there are other things you can learn to do on the website for getting involved with Nest Watch, but that was just one of the one top things that come to mind. Um, actually, there's one regional, there's, there's a few regional quests. Occasionally, we'll put out quests for people to help us out oh, cool. with, and um, one of those right now is um, a request for more dark-eyed junko data, actually, because um, we are collaborating with a research team based at UCLA, this field work was disrupted by COVID-19. And um, if you don't know, most field research at major universities is being put on hold. And so the research team was impacted by this and they have a long, long running study that is very well known in ornithology uh, on these nesting habits of these birds. And so we're asking people this year in particular to help find dark-eyed junco nests and help fill in the gaps for those researchers because they're not unfortunately going to be able to collect nearly as much data this year as they otherwise might have. So they're asking people of all areas to help out. Um, the other interesting kind of data quest that we have going right now is we're doing a collaboration with the Cornell University Museum of Vertebrates, actually looking at um, a really interesting question about why do flycatchers put snakeskin in their nest material? Uh, I know I'm getting back to snakes. I love snakes too. <laughs> but um, this is an interesting thing that great crested flycatchers and ash throated flycatchers do. They will put um, a snake skin kind of coiled up in their nest, maybe around the eggs, maybe coming out of the entrance hole of a nest box or a nest cavity. And nobody really knows why they do it, but we would like to have anybody who finds a great crested flycatcher nest or an ash throated flycatcher nest to report it to Nestwatch and then get some pictures of that snake skin if you can, because what we would like to tell is if that actually improves survival, does it serve a function? We know birds don't really waste their time doing things that don't help, so we suspect there might be some kind of benefit to that, but nobody has been able to confirm that yet. So we, we have a special request this year for those two species. You could potentially get in on uh, on some on some published work if you start looking for snakeskins out there. <laughs> um, I, I I was actually I I come from the snake side of things. I was I was obsessed with snakes as a child, so I might I might have to try and and, and look for some myself. Um, I'm curious, <laughs> what what um what other types of work do you do you do at the lab beyond uh, Nestwatch? And what's 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 it like? What is the day to day like at the lab? Okay, but yeah, the day-to-day -day work at the lab, um, actually a surprising amount of it is online. <laughs> you, you become a, a biologist and you end up doing a lot of online work, but um, that's just the nature of the beast these days. So I do some, some online teaching, lecturing um, here and there as I can. I write a blog for Nestwatch, which tries to connect um, interesting things about birds' nesting lives to our everyday behavior. So, um, you know, we have some interesting examples on our blog of how birds are actually pretty similar to us and how they've inspired us over the years to ask certain questions or think of things a certain way. So um, writing the blog, writing 
um, we've you know I've created in recent years guides to nests and eggs to help people identify bird nests that they find. Um, we've also been working on some new invasive species research. So in the, recently, we've been kind of doing some social science where we ask people questions about what they're doing. And that is to help us understand how human behavior affects birds and what conservation behaviors are people taking. So it really, um, it really varies from day to day. That's one of the things I love about the job is that it really changes depending on the time of year. Specifically this time of year, we're getting a lot of questions about nesting birds and um, what to do if you find a nest or a baby bird. So it, it runs the range of answering emails to, you know, doing science, videos, blogs, a whole lot of different things. But I would say that my favorite thing that I do is writing. I love to write and synthesize what scientists know about a certain topic and make it available to people so that they can know it too because one of the things i'm really passionate about is giving back to the people who have given so much to us they've given so much data over the years that i want to make sure that they can read it learn about it and interpret it for themselves so that's one of the things i'm really passionate about I'm also curious if you know, I'm sure that there there might be, are there any other citizen science programs kind of like Nest Watch that are sort of bedfellows with different species perhaps or different areas that, that you, you know, want to highlight or talk about as other, other really great opportunities that are doing similar things? Oh, absolutely. Um, one project that is sort of similar in that it's seasonal like Nest Watch is our Feeder Watch project. It's called Project Feeder Watch. And that takes place in the winter and you can count birds in your backyard at your feeders and contribute that data as well. And what that does is allow uh, scientists to look at presence and absence of different species, um, flock size, uh, for example, or flock sizes increasing or decreasing. And other interesting questions such as, are birds changing their distribution? And could food possibly be impacting that as well? Could, could putting out food entice birds to nest in different areas? So there's lots of interesting questions that are going on with Feeder Watch, which is a winter project, whereas Nest Watch is more of a summer project. If you want to get started any time of year with birding, a great project to consider would be eBird. eBird you can do any time of year. Um, it also has a mobile app where you can just download the app for free, log in, and start submitting checklists. So this is a project where you would create a checklist of all of the birds that you can see or hear and submit that. And that is ongoing all of the time. And that is one of the major sources of data that was underpinning that 2019 study, um, as well as numerous, numerous other studies about how bird populations are doing. So there are many, many projects. If you just want to invest a day or two, try the Great Backyard Bird Count. That's a really nice, simple project to get going for just a, and that's just usually a weekend in February that is a lesser commitment to dipping your feet in and seeing if this is something you would like. That's great. So we, we mentioned and you mentioned in your presentation that you know now in this time of uh, sequestration like a lot of um, a lot of our nature has to be found really close to home and 
you know, one of the premier, if not the premier type of wildlife you're going to see is a, is a type of bird. Um, so for maybe the less uh, bird savvy of us, what are, what are some of your tips in finding nests or birds or how, how would you approach this, I guess, in your neighborhood if someone is just getting started? Like what's the best, some of your best, like, you know, tips or tricks to, uh, to having success with finding really interesting things? Obviously, don't bring your cat, maybe. <laughs> bring him if he's on a harness. <laughs> um, so a great way to start if you're just getting started with finding nests is to look for birds um, going repeatedly to the same area. So for example, in my new working from home situation, I can see what I, an Eastern Phoebe nest that I know nests on my back porch every year. But this year in particular, I have a lot more opportunity to watch its behavior. And so this Eastern Phoebe is bringing nest material back and forth all day long. And I, I am able to see that. So that I picked up immediately, okay, she's building a nest in that, in that particular spot. And depending on which year it is, they'll generally nest on a different side of the house every year. So um, that is, always a good sign if you see a bird carrying anything in its mouth. They're just not likely to carry things unless they're carrying nest material to build a nest or food to feed a baby. Um, other things you can look for are scolding noises. If you've ever been scolded by a bird, that's the true meaning of angry birds. They will let you know. <laughs> and particularly my Carolina wrens that like to nest um, every year, every year in my garage or on a flower basket on my front porch. And they make this really angry little noise, like Ch -ch 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 -ch. that lets me know, okay, you're near my nest and you need to step away from my area. This is my turf. So when I hear that noise, I know, and they do this four or five times in a row all over my property every year. So um, I've become pretty familiar with that sound of an angry bird. And there are other birds make that similar angry scolding sound as well. So I would listen, listen for that sound. Um, and just look at where old nests are. A lot of times when leaves are off the trees, it's easier to see old nests, and that can give you a good idea of where birds like to put their nests. For example, in the middle of a shrub is a really good place, like right in the center where it's really nice and protected. That's a good place to look for it. But honestly, a lot of people just find nests by surprise. So one day you go to um, open your grill and there's a bird nest in there, or you go check your mailbox and there's the beginnings of a bird nest being built. So more often than not, a lot of times it's just um, opportunistic and that's perfectly acceptable as well to report those nests because to be honest, those are the ones that we're going to see mostly this year in particular. We're gonna be seeing a lot of those nests that are close to people's homes and that's, that's great. That's also very uh, wonderful data that we would like to have. What's the what's the protocol in in approaching a nest? Like how how far away should you be? You know, I, I imagine the different types of data you might have to get closer or not. What are what are the ways I guess to do it safely and be sure you're not, you know, impacting the site, you know, in a in a negative fashion. Exactly. The first priority is always the safety of the bird, and we do want to keep that top of mind as you check or monitor a nest. So um a few do's would be to go, you know, when the weather is, is nice, as we've mentioned, so not raining, not, um, not in the darkness, so we don't want to check nests at night. 
Um, another thing to keep in mind is that you can approach closely, but you want to keep that visit to under one minute. So don't stick around and take like long videos or, uh, you know, go live on Facebook with your favorite nest, you know, take, take a respectful amount of time to check a nest and move away to on your observations. So ideally with nest watch, you would get close enough to see what's in the nest. Now that's not always possible. For example, if you find a red-tailed hawk nest and it's really high, you're probably not going to be able to look in there. But if you find um, a chickadee nest in your birdhouse in your backyard, you probably potentially can look in there depending on how it's situated. And if you can do that, you're gonna take a note of the number of eggs and the live young in the nest and then move away and record your data. Um, other things that you would want to be mindful of are not checking that nest if there's a predator around. So if you see um, crows or ravens or jays or other types of birds that might be a predator for a nest, just check it at a different time. So that's, that's, we always want to put the safety of the bird first. Um, other quick things that come to mind would be to um, never touch the birds themselves or their nests or eggs. So if a bird is sitting on its nest and it doesn't want to leave, there's no reason for you to touch it. And that's actually, you know, the law protects them. So um, we, we'd never need to touch the nests or eggs to get data. It's just not worth it. So I would say those are probably the top things. And there are a few other little things you can do to, um, to help ensure that your birds are successful. Like you can put a predator guard on a nest box to help keep predators out. So you can take these extra steps, but those are some of the most basic things that you can do to make sure you're not jeopardizing the nest success of that bird. Great. Um, you say in your, your writing and your research that you focus on the small things we can do to help birds every day. Um, I feel like you went through a lot of those um, you know, and mm -hmm. as far as safeguarding windows and, and making sure, you know, outside cats are, are under control or in controlled environments. Um, are there any other little things that, that we can do to, to help birds every day kind of in our, in our neighborhood that are outside of those parameters that are worth discussing? Oh, yes, yes, there are many things you can do that um, were not mentioned in the seven simple steps. And, some great examples would be to support conservation organizations. You know, especially in this particular time, um, conservation organizations need your help. They need your memberships and they need your, your data contributions and just your support. Um, so that's an easy thing you can do if that's available to you. Um, there are also, you can stay on top of policy and try to advocate for bird policy that matters to you. And, the Lab of Ornithology has some web pages to help you stay up to date on different policies that you could support that would impact birds. Um, other things that you can do would be to um, spread the word. One of the most common things that I hear about in terms of saving actual bird lives is for a person to tell their neighbor, hey, I noticed you had a bird nesting in that tree that you're about to trim take a moment and consider not doing that right now and do it later. So we've heard numerous examples of people actually saving, physically saving birds by just telling their neighbors, um, I don't think you noticed, but there's a bird nesting in your boat hitch or on, the, on that ladder that you're about to use. And just talking about your passion for birds with other people, especially young people, is one of the best things you can do to help ensure that um, 
what you know doesn't stay with you, but it actually gets spread. And, and we know that for conservation behaviors, word of mouth and visibly, visibly helping birds, like putting a sign in your yard that says, my yard is bird friendly, has a social impact as well that spreads beyond just your, your one action that you might be able to do. Going back to a little bit of the work that that you do, I'm always one of the best parts of my job is talking to scientists who share, you know, stories of being in the field, whether they're funny or um, or or exciting or just having that opportunity to see something that possibly no one has ever seen before, um, whether it's with birds or with with any animal species that you've worked with. I'm curious if you have one of those go to moments where you're like, this is why I do this work and why it's it's just really special, just like stands out as one of those real, you know, like almost planet Earth moments that, that you're able to see. Hmm. Oh, I have, well, I have lots of embarrassing stories from the field that I don't know that I'll share today. Those are great, too. Those are totally welcome. <laughs> um, probably, I guess one of my favorite, my favorite times in the field are um, when I just see something that I'm not looking for, something I'm not expecting. And I remember one time in Michigan, I was studying the rattlesnakes and was walking along and I just saw something that just somewhere in the back of my brain, I was like, that something is weird there in a tree and there was a small shrub and I just paused and I couldn't yet see the bird and I didn't yet perceive what was happening, but I just pattern recognition kicked in and I knew there was something in that tree. So I, I stopped and I looked and there was, um, uh, a black-billed cuckoo on a nest and I thought oh I have never found a cuckoo's nest and a lot of people think that cuckoos in North America don't make a nest that they lay their eggs in other species nests but that's actually the European cuckoo so our cuckoos here in North America do make a nest and I, I wasn't looking for that at all but it was just one of those moments where I thought oh wow this is something really special and I had never seen it before and I've never seen it again. So I, I was just felt so lucky that I, something caught my eye and I just stopped. And when you do that, when you take a moment, sometimes in nature you can feel like there's a pair of eyes looking at you and you, you figure out eventually that it's a deer or a woodchuck or something. And if you can recognize that moment and stop, often you'll see an animal that's been watching you <laughs> and knows exactly where you are, but you know, it takes you a moment to figure out what exactly is going on. So I just always remembered that moment as a really special find. It's always nice when you find a new nest for that's new species for you. So that's, that's cool. That's awesome. Do you, uh, do you, I know a lot of bird watchers have, you know, extensive lists and, you know, occasionally will travel all over the world to see certain things to, to, to kind of to see them all, collect them, to collect all those experiences. Do you have any particular birds on your list where you're like, that is, that's a bucket list bird for me? There are so many. <laughs> There are so many birds that I would love to see, but I am a huge fan of owls. I love owls. They're, they're my favorite type of bird. So cool. any kind of owl I would love to see, but I'd be particularly excited to see a great gray owl. I have to admit I've never seen one. Um, 
And I know that there are some nest watchers who have found their nests and reported their nests. And I'm really jealous of that because they're a bird that nests in remote areas pretty far north. And um, you, you have to be get pretty lucky to find a nest. But even just to see one is a rare opportunity. So being the owl person that I am, I, I would love to see a great gray owl. And I have a big photo of one in my home that uh, one of my dear friends took and photographed and framed it for me as a gift. And I, I just look at that photo every day and I think that's the bird I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> one day that will be you. One day. Yeah. That's great. I was, um, so in, in looking at some work, I saw that, um, that recently, I believe someone participating, I think it was a scientist and not your, a citizen scientist, a participant and not yourself, logged the earliest laid robin's eggs this year before January 6th. And, um, and you at the time said that this was not uh, necessarily a factor of climate change and maybe it had more to do with, with like long, long daylight. But um, I was curious if, if you could maybe comment a little bit on some of the biggest climate factors that you're, that you're seeing that are, that are altering, you know, nesting behavior and bird behavior as a whole. Okay. Yeah. So the story that you referenced is a story about, um, and, and every year we kind of have a first and the last nest of the year that are interesting to bring attention to. And that particular Robin, was nesting, it started building that nest in December and laid its first egg in January, which was the earliest that I had ever seen recorded either in our database or, um, you know, anecdotally had heard about. So one of the first things that comes to your mind when you hear about birds are nesting in January or even December, as we heard from another gentleman who had a, a bird nest that he found in December, um, it, the temptation is to immediately think of climate change and that could be playing a factor in it. But generally, um, what I've seen with um, the, we would call it phenology, the study of when things occur, the bird phenology data is showing us that those changes of how early birds are nesting um, is measured in days, perhaps weeks, but not in year or not in months. So um, as a, trend as species birds might be moving as I gave the example of the tree swallows nesting nine days earlier after 30 years um, that's over a week so they're they're coming back earlier and we do hear people anecdotally telling us that their barn swallows are coming back earlier and earlier and there are, you know there's data to suggest that many different kinds of species are changing when they nest it's just not that extreme right now that we're seeing everything completely out of whack and all types of birds nesting in um, you know January or December. Robins in particular are very um, prolific. They like to nest for even up to five times a year. So the robin one was a bit of an oddball. Um, but we do see other um, more clear evidence that some birds are shifting to nesting sooner and sooner as, as things warm up. Interesting. Are there are um, there any beyond nesting? Like, what are are the other threats from climate change to to birds that that we're seeing? To I guess to songbirds in particular. 
Yeah, so scientists um, in other areas are noticing things like range shifts. So birds um, could be moving north, they could be moving upslope. There are you know, different ways that a bird can migrate so they can change their breeding distribution. And we've seen that with Anna's hummingbirds kind of moving up the coast and nesting further and further north. And that could be, um, there was a paper that showed that that was evidence of climate change, but it could also be being mediated by the availability of feeders, so supplemental hummingbird feeders. And there are other instances of birds kind of moving up slope to get to a cooler temperature or a more humid environment where their nests would be um, more likely to succeed. And there's a term for that called the escalator to extinction where birds are kind of moving up the mountain until there's nothing left at the top for their ideal climate uh, conditions that they would be looking for. So um, there are sort of a number of different ways that birds can respond to climate change, but um, it's also important to think about ways that we're not as able to measure as readily, such as habitat change. So sometimes it's easier to count the birds than to measure how the environment is changing. Um, but one way that I, I mentioned in a previous example was the drought study that is, was looking at how birds might fare under different drought scenarios. And that study revealed some important things about birds, um, their eggs not hatching as readily and the nestlings not leaving the nest as successfully. So it affected both their hatching success and their fledging success, the more severe droughts they were exposed to. So there's, there's lots of different things that we can look at. And um, I could go on and on, but <laughs> maybe those are just some of the most relevant examples that I can think of. Great, I think in a second, we're gonna go to um, questions from the audience because we're getting quite a few. So I wanna make sure we have enough time. But I was wondering if we could end on, um, obviously there's a lot of urgency around, um, you know, and, and some scary stories about what are happening to our birds. But I'm wondering if um, you know of like a, a positive story, maybe a, something that came out of the data that's that's really encouraging or, you know, kind of like a sort of a, a ray of light in all of the, in you know, a lot of the negativity that we kind of have the weather in, in these times. Yes, that was, that was a lot of darkness and I should have brought to your attention sooner that there were some positive examples in that 2019 study of birds that had actually increased their population. Cool. And we see that with species like um, waterfowl, so ducks. Ducks really benefit from our um, hunting dollars for, you know, dollars from the duck stamp and wetland conservation dollars that feed back into that system. Um, so there's, there are lots of government programs that um, incentivize people to create and maintain wetlands and wetlands themselves are protected. So um, we see that the policy there supports the increase of waterfowl populations. We're also seeing um, increases in species like eagles, which benefit from um, their own legal, they have the special status as um, that there are eagle protection acts that protect our eagle populations and um, there are a few species um, turkeys turkeys come to mind turkeys actually used to be very endangered and now are relatively common um, again there's 
there are these examples of species that typically have uh, a contingency of people who are interested in preserving them, whether because of their charismatic species or um, a species that are important to recreation, like hunting. And even as a matter of fact, the Eastern bluebird is a species that used to be really uncommon and is now relatively common and has a stable population trend because we've done a lot of work as a society to put up nest boxes and try to help uh, bring the bluebirds back. So there was really a concerted effort to do that and that was very largely successful. So people put their minds to it and they actually can change the change the trend curve for a lot of these species. Awesome, thank you, thank you so much for that. Um, this has been really incredible. So I'm going to uh, to turn it over to uh, Joe Gillard, who's going to pitch some questions from our audience to you. Yes. Um, <clears throat> so uh, since now is the Q and A time, we'll just remind you one more time that you can type in any questions you have into the uh, Q and A section. Quite a few people have already asked. Um, but just a reminder, now is the time to ask your question um, in the Q&A box. Uh, not the chat, but the Q&A, if you don't mind. Uh, so the first question, uh, Robin, we have from, a, um, from an attendee is, they want you to further describe the window protector devices you mentioned earlier to prevent bird crashes. Uh, they want to know where you can get them. Um, and it sounds like they want just a little bit more information on those. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, there are a variety of different kinds of films that you can purchase to protect your windows and they range from products that would cover an entire window with a grid-like material and you can, you can have them made into shapes of birds or um, it can just be a geometric pattern and then that would be kind of one end of the extreme. Uh, relatively easier options are these products that you can get in wild bird stores that are essentially window stickers or window clings. And those are less, generally less expensive and easier to apply. Um, I can tell you that the product that I put on my office window is a product called Artscapes. And I believe I'm getting that correctly, but it was, was about $10 and I put six stickers on my office window and that's been really helpful. Uh, I haven't had any birds thunk on the window since I put that there. Um, so that has personally worked for me quite well. Um, but there are, there are a variety of products. I it wouldn't do justice to any one of them to, to highlight one or the other because they're all, they're all valuable. Anything you can do will help. But um, I would say check out your wild bird store nearest you uh, when they reopen. <laughs> Or you can check out Amazon and look for some options there. But the key is to um, really put them close enough together that birds will see them and not try to fly in between them. So usually the recommendation is generally to put them somewhere four to six inches apart, depending on what kind of product. And um, vertical stripes are better than horizontal. Excellent. Um, the next question we have is, uh, how many birdhouses should you have in your yard? This this um, this person said they have a quarter of an acre. A quarter of an acre is a is a great size. How many birdhouses you have really is up to you, and it depends on the kinds of species that you're trying to attract. 
And that's a really good question because there's a nuance there that has to do with birds being territorial. So birds are going to defend their breeding territory from other species that are the same species as them. So for example, if you're trying to attract chickadees, you would want to put, um, you would want to space them out enough so that each bird would have a, a box in its own territory rather than um, side by side. Now you can do side by side if your intention is to support multiple kinds of nesting birds. And if you go to our website, um, nestwatch.org, and follow the link to the All About Bird Houses section, we have specific recommendations for how far apart species of the same type will nest from each other. So for example, two bluebirds or two violet green swallows um, might tolerate one another. But the reality is that birds are, they have free will and they often do things that, um, as they see fit without our guidelines or recommendations in mind. So you might see them nesting closer together than what we recommend or further apart than what we've suggested. I would um, start by just checking out the Right Bird, Right House tool on our website to see which species will nest in your region and your habitat type. Um, that'll give you a list of species that would be appropriate for your habitat type. Um, and it will highlight any that might be in decline. So you may choose to uh, really prioritize a species that is in decline in your area as opposed to a different species if you only have room for one or two. Um, but yeah, for, it really depends on the type of habitat you have and the kind of birds you're trying to attract. So I would really go online and check out our Right Bird, Right House tool. Excellent. Um... This one, uh, it's a little longer, but the question is at the end. Uh, they said, Robin, great presentation. This is Doug and Natasha with Animal Data Science. Dramatic updates today. We have 55 volunteers in Seattle who have deployed 75 chickadee boxes. We placed orders for our automated nest devices from China in mid-January when only a couple of small font news stories about a mysterious new virus. Long story short, uh, normally a three-week lead time to get these made in China, DHL delivered to my door today, four hours ago. Question, our volunteers, our volunteers have nest boxes that uh, where chickadees have removed all or almost all of the chips. How likely is it that they will use a box that they've removed the nesting material from? Okay. Hi, Doug and Natasha. <laughs> Great questions. There's some story there that I know that they're keen to get volunteers out in the field checking these boxes. Um, to cut to the, the chickadee part of the question, um, chickadees love to excavate, so we actually recommend that you stuff their nest box full of wood chips and allow them to do that excavating behavior. And that's usually, if they've done that, it's a good sign that they will nest in that box. Um, that's, a, that's an innate behavior that they like to do. And even if you are actually providing a birdhouse without wood chips in it, they do often use those as well with or without the wood chips, but the wood chips kind of gives them an opportunity to, um, first of all, ex excavate, which is a behavior they like to do, but also pr may prevent other species from using that box first. Chickadees are kind of on the small end of the bird spectrum and they often will get um, ousted from a nest box if another bigger species comes along. So the wood chips, have a nice way of keeping out other birds that don't have that excavating behavior and allows the chickadee to take its time to claim that box. So 
Um, I hope that that answers the question and I'm excited to hear more about that research project that I know is going to uncover some new things with those interesting devices that they've got. Yes, it sounds very interesting. Um, uh, this person asked, with climate change, are there some geographic areas getting more birds and new species? Uh, they asked, how about here in the Northwest in Port Townsend? Hmm, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I, I don't know that you've probably already had plenty of um, Anna's hummingbirds, but I mentioned the Anna's hummingbird example where the Anna's are moving further north and actually breeding further north than they did in the past. Um, over the last 20 or so years, um, I can tell you that here in the northeast, we've had Carolina wrens moving further and further north and actually overwintering. So um, another component to shifting your range is determining whether or not you're going to migrate. And what we're seeing here is that the Carolina wrens, I now have them all year round. Whereas two decades ago, they would have probably A, not been in my area at all. But if they had been for breeding season, they would have migrated further south. But now we have pairs all year round. So um, it's difficult to speak to a specific location, but um, these shifts are happening gradually and it's, it's difficult to predict um, when the, the, the entire range of a bird will move far enough north for anyone in particular to detect it. So that's a, that's a particularly challenging question to answer because um, really anything can show up anywhere at any time, but some of the examples of things like cardinals moving further north, um, we, we see it in, <clears throat> excuse me, tree swallows as well moving further north. This is a species that migrates long distances and over the past few years we've been seeing them nesting at very northern locales. So um, seeing some species just showing up and breeding and it's usually very incremental, but we do see it. And over time, it accumulates to enough to where a species becomes established as a breeder in that area. So yeah, I guess, I guess that's all I have to say about that. It's super hard to predict a specific location. Yeah, thank you. Um, another question was, have you noticed any differences in bird migrations or nesting with so many people staying inside due to COVID-19? Hmm, that's a very relevant question. With COVID-19, um, it's still fairly early in the nesting season, and I'm not entirely sure what this season of breeding birds will have to tell us about it, but I'm really curious to see when the data come in, if there's anything new that we'll be able to see in the data. So I haven't had a chance to look at the data yet about nesting birds in particular. Um, and with regard to migration, um, as far as I know, birds have been pretty much doing what they normally do. Um, what, I, what I think will be a likely outcome of the stay-at-home orders for people and, and how that might impact birds is that we're hearing anecdotal evidence that people can hear birds more clearly, especially in urban areas. Um, and birds who live in urban areas often will elevate their 
pitch so that they can be heard at longer distances over the sound of um, you know, human noises. So what I would be curious is for other researchers who study acoustics and um, singing behavior would be to look at how birds might be changing or adapting to this, this temporary pause that we're experiencing. So it's very early, probably too early to tell, but I think there's some, a natural experiment going on here that, that we could dive into. Um, and this person, they said they are not a birder. And their question is, how do birds not freeze at night in the winter? What do they do? Where do they stay? <laughs> that is a question that is as complex as there are number of birds out there. So um, what some strategies are for birds to just migrate, to just get out and go south. Um, birds that do stay in the winter have um, a variety of techniques that they can use to keep uh, their body temperature warm at night. Um, so things like um, fluffing up their feathers can help retain their body heat. Um, we know that some birds will roost in cavities, or you may notice if you've ever left your home at night and seen a bird just fly away suddenly from your porch or patio. They like to roost in little crevices around our homes. Um, if you've ever seen a little bird in your gutter or hanging out under a little patio covering, anything like that, we know that birds seek out places to sleep at night that are warmer than the surrounding environment. And sometimes that's nest boxes too. Um, you might even see a bird sleeping in a nest in the winter because that nest offers some little bit of shelter. We also see with some species that they will gather together in large groups to conserve heat and may roost um, as a, a small flock in the middle of a shrub and that will, that will help conserve heat in their bodies as well. Um, there are, there are lots of different strategies that we see and they really depend on the kind of bird that we're looking at. But I, um, I know that you know, in the far northern states, in the coldest climates and in Canada, some birds will even burrow under the snow to keep warm. So there's, um, each, each bird kind of has its own strategy for dealing with that. But I would, I would rather be the one that roosts in a birdhouse than the one that has to burrow under the snow if I had to choose. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, there's a few more questions. Uh, this one, um, <clears throat> so she says, we have recently moved into a neighborhood with a number of outdoor cats. Our yard mm -hmm. is often their hangout. As a cat lover over the years, indoors, and a great fan of birds, outdoors, we notice the lack of birds here. Uh, she says, you mentioned 30 billion birds have been lost since the 1970s, but 3 billion birds a year have been lost due to cats. Are cats worse than climate? Do we have, do we have more control of cats? That's a fantastic question and so complex. Um, cats are um, an immediate threat to birds in a way that climate change is sort of a slowly approaching, well, not so slowly anymore, but in a threat that's approaching that we can see it coming. Um, unfortunately, cats have been here for a long time and they have, they've had a lot of opportunity over the you know, many previous decades to impact our bird populations. 
Um, I'm a cat lover as well. Again, I have six cats and they're all indoors and I, I love cats and I, I love seeing them. And I can totally empathize with being in that scenario where you have a neighborhood that has some cats in the yard. And there are some things you can do to help your birds in your yard avoid those cats. And those would be things like um, not feeding birds, or if you do feed birds, providing barriers so that the cat can't hunt around your, your feeder. So for example, you might choose to just offer hummingbird food or other kinds of food um, in a location that the cat can't access. You can also mount your nest boxes really high off the ground and put a predator guard on it so the cat can't um, access your nest box, like in the photo that I showed you where the cat was sitting on the nest box. So there are things that you as an individual have under your control to help with the, the outdoor cat situation. But as far as threats go, um, the cats are ranked pretty highly in the overall scheme of threats to birds, which is why I bring them up. I think it's important enough to, to have this conversation about it. Um, but where I'm reluctant to say that it's more or less urgent than some other things, just because that's a question that requires a long-term perspective with climate change is how that might change birds. But yeah, cats are, cats are an immediate concern right now. Um, here's one from Sarah Sharota. She says, so I have a few owls that appear to be living in the green belt behind my house. Um, as evidenced by the vocalizations I hear at night around the neighborhood. Do you have any recommendations for how I might be able to safely spot an owl nest without disturbing other birds in the area? Hmm, great question. So there are a few types of owls that will nest in a nest box. You could put up a nest box if you think it's a screech owl or a barred owl. They will come to nest boxes and use them. Um, that would be a way to have a predictable place to look for an owl's nest. Um, otherwise, they might be nesting in um, a hollow of a dead tree or some other type of natural hollow that they have found. If it's a great horned owl, and I, I don't, I'm not sure exactly which species of owl the, the question was referring to, but if great horned owls don't nest in a birdhouse, but they don't they also don't make a nest. So what I would do in that scenario is look for an existing nest that's been uh, previously used by a hawk or a raven, and that would be a likely suspect for an owl nest. So for example, we often see them reusing the nests of other birds. Um, a few years ago, in fact, um, somebody, I forget, where exactly it was, but somebody submitted a photograph of an owl sitting in a great blue heron nest and surrounded by great blue herons because great blue herons are colonial and they will nest in these big groups. But the, this owl had taken over one of the nests and was just sitting in the middle of this colony as if, as if it belonged there. It was <laughs> a really strange photo that I remember, but um, a good, that's a great way to find a great horned owl nest is to look at nests that are really conspicuous and big and have previous. So if you know of a heron nest or a raven or a red-tailed hawk nest, keep an eye on it. It's a good, it's, there's a good chance it could be used by a great horned owl. Um, the barred owls and screech owls and many other small owls do come to nest boxes. So that's always a good place to start too. Joe, I think that's the last question, isn't it? Uh, there's a couple more. Okay. There's about four more if we have time. Please do. Okay. Um, 
Uh, uh, Val asked, I've fed birds in my backyard uh, year round for almost four years with the same foods, black sunflower seed, finch food, hummingbird feeder, and suet, plus a water bath. And I've always had birds year round until the last couple of months when I've had almost no birds at all in the North Olympic Peninsula here in Washington. Do you know what's happening? This is a common question that we hear in particular this time of year because um, what we see are that um, trees are leafing out, flowers are becoming available, and insects are emerging. So for the first time in what was probably many months, the birds have some access to natural foods and their interest in our bird feeders goes down temporarily. So it's not uncommon to see um, a lack of interest in your feeders for a short time when things start to really come out in the spring. Um, it doesn't mean that you should stop feeding or that the birds aren't necessarily benefiting from your feeders because when they do actually have young to feed, they might renew their interest in your feeders and use that food particularly for themselves as they will be exhausted. It's a lot of energy and calories that you spend raising nestlings. So I would, if you, that's something that you enjoy and you want to keep doing, definitely keep those feeders up. But this is a common thing that people experience um, in the springtime. Okay, excellent. Um, Barbara Stoller asked, which organization was it that needs data on black-eyed juncos? So that was, that's Nest Watch, which is a citizen science project here at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Um, it was a request that was made based on a research collaborator in UCLA who has been using NestWatch for a few years to conduct their studies. They use our app and they contribute data to the NestWatch project, but they also um, can access data from the NestWatch project. And they are, uh, this is a request that is being made to help bolster our usual data set that we might normally get and ask people to make a special effort to submit data on the dark eyed Junko's nesting because we know this year in particular there's a research need and a question that um, that is kind of being on delayed because of the the stay-at-home requests so um, yes that is nestwatch.org and you can report those nests there thank you um two more questions uh, this one is from Doug. You might have seen the fun article in Slate magazine two weeks ago about the virus lockdowns titled, You Now Have No Choice But to Become a Backyard Birder. So question is, has the Cornell Lab seen any inqu increased inquiries, clicks, or questions that might be due to people stuck in their houses? Hmm. I certainly can't speak for the whole Cornell Lab of Ornithology because there are many different departments, but I have heard that our front desk is receiving more questions than usual as people are staying at home and noticing more birds and asking more questions. Um, I've yet to determine if it will result in increased uh, citizen science participation because on the one hand, people may have more time and may find that this is something they can do with their kids and may increase participation. Um, alternatively, we may find that people stuck at home might not have access to outdoor space that they would normally visit. And so it might, for some people, it might decrease their participation. So it's too early to tell for how it will affect our citizen scientist um, population, but I, we've definitely been receiving more questions about um, uh, a number of inquiries about birds this year and 
I think there is some concern, uh, you know, whether people can still go out and, and check birds and particularly their nests. But um, yeah, it's, it's, um, that's just from what I've seen in my department, but I don't know if others at the lab have experienced the same thing. Sounds like good news. Um, final question here, Robin. Is it advisable to keep hummingbird feeders out all winter? I'm gonna assume that question comes from the, the Port Townsend area and say, <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, if you're seeing hummingbirds year round, you can definitely go ahead and put out that feeder all year. Um, for many people, it is sort of a diminishing return and not seeing as many in the winter is a factor that can discourage people from doing it all year, but there's no harm in it. So if you're, if you have a bird that lingers or you want to support birds that might be there in the winter, it's, it's, it's not unadvisable. I think the, the, where that comes from is the fear that if I don't take my feeders down, the hummingbirds won't migrate, but that's not actually true. Hummingbirds, only rely on feeders for a small portion of their diet. It's certainly not the entire diet of a hummingbird. And by taking it down, you won't be affecting their migration status really immediately in that moment. You're just going to be supporting birds that might be other might be lingering for other reasons. Mm -hmm. So, um, hummingbird feeders and um, flowers are both great resources for hummingbirds. So if that is something that you have the ability to do and you enjoy it, you can go ahead and keep doing that. Ted, I wanna thank you and Robin both for being here today and for answering all those questions and such a wonderful and stimulating conversation. Do you have anything to add to close, Ted? Uh, the only thing I would add is that uh, I'm, I'm certainly inspired to get out there and start uh, identifying birds and, and getting getting uh, deeper in on Nest Watch, and I hope everyone else is too. Um, I, a funny story to close is when I, in my younger days, reporting in the field where wildlife sightings were, you know, tantamount, the birds were always like, oh, we went out for weeks and only saw birds, you know, and, and then as you kind of mature, you realize that they are these incredible little dinosaurs all over the place. So I, I just really appreciate the insight that Robin brought to this conversation and it means a lot to me and I hope to your whole audience. Thank you for listening to this Centrum podcast. The creator and host of Communiversity is Robert Berman, Centrum's executive director. Centrum podcasts are produced by Taven Dotson, Owen Rowe, and Holly Miller. Our executive producer is Joe Gillard. With gratitude and respect, we acknowledge that we broadcast from the traditional lands of the Coast Salish peoples, from the place known by the Sklalem people as Katai, and today called Port Townsend, Washington. Centrum programs are based at Fort Warden State Park in Port Townsend. Centrum was founded in 1973 to foster creative arts experiences that change lives and is dedicated to building a world of greater inclusion through the arts. Other Centrum podcasts include music from the Centrum archives, interviews with teaching artists, and readings from the Port Townsend Writers' Conference. To subscribe to any of our podcasts or to support or participate in Centrum programs, visit our website at centrum.org. 
Thank you for listening. This podcast is copyright 2020 Centrum Foundation.